0: I think I'll sit so I can see what I'm saying. Sure. Can you all hear me? I'm. No, you can. All right. We're trying to get this straightened out early on because people get unhappy and call up <laughs> instead of making a fuss because they're too polite when they're here. Can anybody, everybody, hear me now? There's no problem. Okay. I guess are we okay then? All right. I have a piece of paper here, and I've written down, Good evening, I'm Ellen Curry, because <laughs> I thought if I got off to a good start, I'd be all right after that. I, um, I'm happy to welcome you here on behalf of the Penn American Center. This, as you know, is another in the series of Penn programs whereby established Penn members introduce new writers, and the new writers read from their work. These have been very successful these evenings, and we'd particularly like to thank Encarnita Quinlan and the staff of this lovely bookstore whose generosity and hard work and general all-around good spirit has helped to make things so successful and so pleasant for all of us. I'm particularly glad to have a part in this program because the last time I uh, was at one of these evenings, I was being introduced. Maureen Howard introduced me as a new writer, as indeed I was a very new writer. And not a young writer, but a new writer. And well, I think it was the first time I'd ever read in public. And I was terrified. And it was an extraordinarily good experience from my point of view. I never in my life hoped to have as attentive and responsive an audience again as I had that night. It was wonderful. And for someone who's I hadn't finished the book, you know, it was the first airing. I had no idea how it would go. It was so. It's, a, it's sort of an eccentric book, and I didn't know what would happen when I read it aloud. You know, it was a wonderful audience, and lots of very nice things happened to me as a result of that evening and that reading. And I'm told that there are writers, young writers, who have actually achieved publication as a result of these evenings, and that's really rather marvelous. So I hope this evening is as much fun as the one where I was introduced as a new writer was. I'm uh, to tell you, you are not to smoke, and I'm to remind you that there's a reception at the front of the shop. Now, this thing looks like a, a bunch of winners here. David Levitt will introduce Benita Friedman. Gloria Naylor will introduce Kathy Elaine Anderson. Laurie Siegel will introduce Phyllis Moore. Louis Simpson will introduce Matthew Cariello and Wendy Hesford. Here we are with David.
1: Hi, um, I'm David Levitt, and whoops, I brought the wrong piece of paper. <laughs> Start again. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I'm very happy to introduce tonight my friend Bonnie Friedman, whose reading will, uh, I suppose, inaugurate this evening of uh, of new writers um bonnie was born and raised in the bronx Uh, she attended wesleyan university and the university of iowa writers workshop she's worked at a number of jobs probably the most memorable of which was as an editorial assistant at the guinness book of world records a job which figures in some of her writing (laughs) and she currently lives in hanover new hampshire where her husband is attending dartmouth business school Uh, Fortuitously, this reading coincides with Bonnie's first publication, a story entitled The Pathology of Love in the October issue of Playgirl. A wonderful title, I think, and one which resonates throughout the body of her work. When I think of Bonnie's writings, the first words which come to my mind are passion and authority. There's an almost 19th century quality to this work, an assured, vigorous confidence. The narrator saying in that grand, old-fashioned way, trust me, I know what I'm doing. I'm going to take you someplace worth going. Bonnie's stories impress me with the reach of their effects, the boldness and confidence with which they begin, and sweeping you in as a reader and not letting go. There's also in this work that wonderful quality of sensing the words struggling to transcend the limits of the page to become flesh or architecture, as well as a strong and erotic feeling for the physical world and a refreshing embrace of history. In a long story called Wives and Husbands, and I think that that inversion of that title, ins- Wives and Husbands instead of Husbands and Wives, is in and of itself somewhat revealing, um, the story which Bonnie's going to read part of tonight, a mother recounts to her daughter two stories of marital disaster and extremity, which have long since transmuted into myth. And what's astonishing about her rendition of these literal wives' tales, is not only her ability to bring them absolutely to life, to make them totally convincing and painfully immediate, but her refusal to leave them as mere legend, as the stuff of the past, her insistence instead on showing how the past and its mythologies inform the present, how the mother's tales of marriage in another age affect a daughter on the verge of adulthood. The pathologies of love articulated in this story are Bonnie's, uh, Friedman's ultimate concern and not just in relationships between lovers, but in those between parents and children, and especially movingly between sisters. I think we can all be grateful to be hearing Bonnie tonight at the beginning of what promises to be a bright, and in the best sense of the word, a literary career.
2: I hope I can live up to that. Is this good? Sam Greenfeld arrived home from work every evening at 6.15. Often he brought presents for his children, a handful of salted red pistachio nuts he'd carried in his pocket, a few chocolate-covered jellies, sometimes even marzipan shaped like poodles or frankfurters or ladies' hats. He set the Herald Tribune on the table and went into the bathroom to wash his hands for supper, which he ate with attention, savoring it and commenting on its spicing. This pleased his wife, Bluma who took pride in her cooking, not stinting on the raisins or meat in her stuffed cabbage and never just boiling a chicken. She felt lucky to have a man who appreciated what his wife prepared, unlike the men her friends Anna and Frances had ended up with. Nearly every evening, Sam and Bluma took a stroll, her hand circling his arm. The blue glow of dusk hung above the apartment buildings. The erratic thump of a rubber ball from the kids playing stoop ball resounded for blocks, accompanied by the sound of rushing water as the tiny Japanese restaurant hosed down tubs and pans right in the street. The couple walked past the unlit stores to the playground, which was presided over by a green bronze statue of Anthony J. Nugabort, minor captain of industry and city planner. Here they sat on a bench just below Mr. Nugabort's gigantic feet. They talked about how business was going and how the children were doing at school, and if Julius should be allowed to have clarinet lessons instead of violin, and if their youngest, Maury, wasn't perhaps too shy, should he be encouraged to join Little League? A boy needs, after all, some social life. It was sweet luxury for Bluma this half hour, even after the neighborhood began, quote, to change, even after it was just them in the apartment and they found they had little that they actually needed to say, Even on the Saturdays when they squabbled and he came into where she was later and said, I'm hungry, and she said, so cook something and feed yourself. Even then they took their walk and watched the air deepen from charcoal to cobalt blue, sitting side by side on the graffiti-covered bench. All the way up until Sam's death at the age of 60, they were the envy of many friends whose marriages had slid into a routine of bitterness. The morning of Sam's funeral was not cool. Nevertheless, Bluma insisted on wearing her thick brown coat with the wood buttons. It had been Sam's favorite, and besides, she wanted to feel its heaviness around her today. Ever since Sam's death at work, they'd called a strange man's voice saying, I don't know how to tell you this, but your husband's had a stroke. I'm very, very sorry. And she'd wanted to scream at him, my God, who are you? Ever since then, things had seemed unreal. There was a horrible discussion she'd overheard about the price of coffins and the cost-benefit ratio of various types of wood, and she was asked to decide which suit Sam should be buried in, and the house was crammed with people tiptoeing about. So she'd worn this coat. She felt its heaviness might give her a sense of protection and solidity on this most fantastic day. The sun sank into Bluma's neck and shoulders during the funeral, and the rabbi's words washed over her. Blessed and praised, glorified and exalted, extolled and honored, adored and lauded be God's great name. White markers extended far into the distance, stuck into the shimmering grass. Why should the dead be so segregated from the living, Bluma wondered? Why should they be exiled to a land of their own when, as the elderly know, death is as close as a false step in your own apartment, and a man like Sam could go in a stroke, a stroke? Why the very word revealed the speed with which we cross over the rabbi's book was closed bluma saw it was a blue book with a clear polyethylene cover she looked at the rabbi he was wearing a dark blue trench coat over his suit and a black yarmulke that had crimped into a teepee how much was it that the coffin had finally cost she was with a boy once and walking and he stepped back from the street and it was because a hearse had gone by he didn't like to be near them Later, that boy had given her a terrible wet kiss with his horsey lips and tried to touch her. A small shovel glinted in the rabbi's hand. Then the shovel was in her son Julius's hand. The sky was a vast open blue, smooth as a mirror. Her body was radiating heat. The soft thud of earth-hitting wood was the most final sound she had ever heard. And at that instant, a woman gasped. Turning, she saw a thin, sallow face. Are you able, a strange voice said in her ear. The rabbi was standing close beside her. The shovel was pushed into her hands. But I shouldn't, said Bluma. Come on, it's the modern world, the rabbi said. Women are people too, and he pressed her fingers around the handle. How much fabric there was in this coat. She couldn't imagine how the seamstress had ever gotten her needle through it. The shovel felt warm in her hands. He's lying in there in a box, she thought. She dug into the loose mound of earth, lifted the shovel, and threw dirt on her husband's grave. The grass was sparkling, a lush green. So many guests were jammed into her living room that Bluma didn't know where to stand. The lawyer's wife from downstairs walked by with a platter loaded with cakes and said, Bluma, I'm so sorry. Bluma's brother, dressed in a three-piece pinstripe suit, pressed her shoulder and said, "Blume, don't hesitate to call. Anything you need, for you I'm available 24 hours a day. Maury took her arm. There was so much I never said to Pop, he said. I know he wanted more from me than to run a shoe store. And then Maury was crying, and she said, it's okay, Maury. He didn't care so much about that. And he nodded and said, yeah, yeah, I know. Have some tea, Mama, said Elaine, her son Julius's wife. Elaine bent toward her, smelling of peppermints, and whispered, don't feel like you have to be brave, Mama. Real courage is letting your feelings out. Bluma nodded and looked away. The skinny woman who had gasped at the funeral was sitting on the couch, wearing a thin black cotton dress and scuffed shoes. Beside her slouched a surly-faced boy in a green sweater with a few prominent moth holes. The boy cracked his knuckles and gazed at the floor. The woman watched the people eating and talking, a look of quiet interest on her face. Bluma threaded her way across the room and sat down beside her on the couch. After a while, the woman picked up a vase lying on the side table. We bought that ages ago, Bluma said. The woman nodded. It was in an antique shop on 8th Avenue. What a funny little place that had been. Bluma remembered thinking it was empty until they spied a man all the way in the back, sitting still as a Buddha behind a lilac couch, a stump of cigar wedged in his mouth, the yellow wire of a transistor radio trailing up his shirt front to end in a socket in his ear. Bluma had thought this vase, which swirled with orange and red flowers, was garish, but they'd bought it because Sam said, it has charm, it has genuine charm. That was Sam's taste, Bluma said. The woman nodded. I could tell. Really, how did you know Sam? You're not in the family, are you? The woman glanced at her with sharp brown eyes. My name is Emily Turkle, she said, and she licked her lips. Yes? I should never have come. I wanted, you see, that's my son, she said, indicating the boy in the sweater. Who had taken a booklet of anagrams out of his pocket and was doing them in ink? Yes," said Bluma. "Sam Greenfeld. Sam was his father. What?" said Bluma, staring at her. "How can that be?" He came over to see me on Sundays. On Sundays, between eleven thirty and four. But he worked on Sundays. The woman shook her head. He was with me. He married me also. She thrust out her hand. A gold band, identical to Bluma's, shone on the woman's tobacco-stained finger. Bluma stared up at the woman's bony face with its wire-thin eyebrows and curled eyelashes and tried to keep breathing steadily, but the walls were pressing in and squeezing the light out, and she had to grab the woman's arm to keep from falling. Mama cried Elaine, rushing to her. Come in and talk with me, please, said Bluma quietly. Emily Turkle nodded, and the two widows rose and crossed the room, which was full of people who were sedately chatting. They sat on the bed. It was a saggy bed covered with a gray chenille spread. Once it was taut as a stretched rubber band, 325 coils, cotton padding, a wedding present from Sam's parents. They had enjoyed it thoroughly and had never considered buying a new one, although now it contained the permanent impression of 30 years of holding Sam and Bluma's bodies. I need to ask you a few questions, Bluma said. Through the wall, she heard Maury's voice. The cadence is soft and familiar. You knew Sam, she said. For how long did you know, Sam? 20 years. 20 years? Julius was already in high school, catching the trolley each morning, and Maury was still friends with that wild boy, Johnny Venn. So, every Sunday for 20 years, and you, why did you put up with it, said Bluma excitedly. You knew about me? You knew he had a a wife and a family and a home and obligations? You didn't think he was some kind of a traveling salesman? I knew about you. Why did you put up with it? What could you have been thinking? I was in love. Bluma's eyes widened. Then she gazed around the bedroom at the dresser whose brown handles had worn to blondness from years of yanking them open and pushing them shut, at the sewing machine piled with light green curtains she'd been making for the kitchen, at the red vinyl chair and frayed easy chair, and the bureau with its photos of Sam's parents. It was a horrible joke, all of it, What she'd believed was a home was just props for a show and had been all these years. And Bluma was stricken with nausea and had the urge to run into the living room yelling, go home everybody. You didn't know Sam Greenfeld. Sam Greenfeld didn't exist. Quit your crying and go home. Bluma sighed. Did he ever talk about me, she said. Emily Turkle shook her head. Please don't be afraid of hurting me. Did he say what it was about me he didn't like? No, never. I'm not sure there was anything, Mrs. Greenfeld. Maybe it's that I didn't make interesting enough conversation. Maybe I didn't have new ideas. I never followed the news the way he did, and when you're home alone all day with the kids, it's difficult to think of something interesting to discuss sometimes. Summer evenings in the playground came back to her, the swings casting a giant angular shadow, a few teenage couples talking or embracing on the other benches, the sun just aglow behind the chimneys, and the good steady bulk of Sam beside her. Maybe that whole time he was restless, "'Excuse me, Mrs. Greenfield, but Sam never mentioned anything like that,' said Emily Turkle. "'Well, maybe the kids made too much noise.' He never said. "'Well, it could have been, you know, after the first few years, sometimes a long time would go by before, well, before we had marital relations, two or three weeks sometimes.' Bluma looked pleadingly into Emily Turkle's face. "'I don't think it was that,' she said. "'Often he would come over and just have tea and sit.' And sit, said Bluma, as horrified as if she'd said her Sam was copulating with animals. I can't remember him ever speaking against, speaking against you, Emily Turkle said. In the beginning, I kept wishing he would. Bluma bent her head, beginning to cry, and Emily Turkle listened quietly. Bluma looked down at her lap and her own hands lying in her lap, crying and feeling her own smallness, and feeling that this is all she had, this body, in a world that was spinning like a top. How thin her arms had grown during the years. How translucent her skin had become. She looked at the age spots on her wrists and hands, brown stains that had once appalled her. What was she but a body with a name? No, that wasn't right. She was just a body, a body that had been on this earth a long time. He was a wonderful man, Sam was, said Emily Turkle. Emma Bluma gazed up at her. Every week he'd come. I was crazy about him, always from Monday to Saturday I would be counting off the days to his visit. What were they like his visits, Bluma said softly. The woman blushed. I never told anyone, she said. I was always too ashamed. Please tell me, said Bluma. The woman smiled. He would come in, she said. First I'd hear his knock on the door. How I hated it if he was even just a few minutes late with trouble on the subway or something, because that was my time, you know. Well, So he'd knock on the door and I'd go answer and there he would be in a fine suit, smiling. He brought me a goldfish once in a little jar. Can you imagine? And one other time when he'd received a big bonus at work, he brought me a dictionary with a tooled leather cover. The table would be set with a nice meal. I'd spent on good silver and china and every week made something special like fish with a special cream sauce or chicken with tarragon and followed by a high-grade tea. Sam always appreciated a good meal. Yes, said Bluma although he told me not to spend my money on it, not to go to the trouble. Ah, well, said Bluma. Yes, some things you just want to do. Emily Turkle paused. Are you all right, she asked Bluma. Yes, please go on. How was his week, I'd ask. He'd talk about sales, new clients, about how the kids were, and you. Emily blushed and hurried on. I'd tell him about my job. I used to work in a factory sewing buttonholes, and then I worked in a bakery, but the hours were terrible, and then I got a job as a secretary. And on Sundays, from the moment I woke up in the morning, and it was early, always early on Sundays, from that moment my heart was racing. It had been all week, it seemed, since I'd been even touched. Emily was silent a moment. Through the wall came the murmur of the guests. We'd discuss Neil, if he should be sent to summer camp or not, how he was doing at school. Suddenly it would be 3.30. I was heartsick. That last half hour was slow and frantic and full of dread. Even, years of, even after years of seeing him like this, I learned what four and a half hours is. Bluma nodded. Once, said Emily Turkle, I followed him home. I wanted to see what you looked like. I took the same subway and sat in the next car and saw what apartment building he went into. I waited across the street. It was a chilly day, and I was wearing a pink spring jacket. I saw lots of different people who lived in your building. A boy went out with a skateboard, and I remember wondering if he were Julius, but somehow I didn't think so. I waited there all afternoon. Finally, Sam came out, and he was with you. Yes, said Bluma. I walked behind you. You had on a plum-colored coat with embroidery on the sleeves and wore a matching felt hat. I thought you were very stylish. Bluma smiled. I felt so cheap that day spying on you. Bluma nodded. You went to a park and sat, said Emily. You looked so close, so loving, the two of you. I nearly went up to you then. I nearly went up and told you everything. How long ago was that? She shrugged, Eighteen, nineteen years. How did you meet, Bluma said? We worked in the same building. Sometimes we rode the same elevator. One day in winter, I was wearing brand new boots with slick bottoms. About a block from work, my leg flew out from under me and I hit the ice. Sam saw the accident and helped me. My knee was black and blue and so swollen. And Sam waited to see if I would be okay. And we talked. I was 30 years old and still living with my mother. It became like a sickness. I thought of him all the time. I couldn't quit. I knew he had a wife. He'd told me. I knew it was stupid feeling this way, but I couldn't stop. I woke up and already he was in my mind. I'd get to work early and wait outside just to watch him go in. And if he was sick one day or I missed him, I wanted that day blotted out. I wanted it to be gone so that it would be tomorrow when I'd see him. I knew he had a wife. I knew it was hopeless. I left my job in that building and found another and still couldn't stop thinking about him. Finally, I invited him over to my house. It was an afternoon when my mother wouldn't be home. I was shocked when he came. I never thought he would. Emily Turkle fell silent, and they sat there on the sagging bed, hearing the murmur of the mourners on the other side of the wall. It was years before I could admit to myself how things were. I kept thinking, this isn't my real life. This isn't really me. I kept expecting I'd meet some other man and fall in love. Bluma nodded. Sometimes I was even happy with the way things were, yes and I wanted you to know. Do you hate me for telling you? I don't know, Bluma said. When they emerged from the small bedroom, Bluma was walking slowly, as if it pained her to move her legs. Two or three guests who had been waiting came up to extend their sympathy. Sam was a wonderful, sincere, generous person, said a man in a brown suit who had worked with Sam for many years. Bluma's two sons stood near the table, talking softly. Doodling on the back of his book of puzzles sat Emily's son, Neil. Bluma looked at the gathering of people in their dark clothes, at her friends and children, and the more distant relatives who had come in from the other boroughs. It was a strange sensation, realizing that even the people closest to her didn't know who she was right now. She'd changed. She knew something pertaining to herself that even her children and best friends didn't know. It was as if she'd made a secret compartment in herself that was hers alone. Perhaps that's why Sam did it, she thought, to feel like this. Emily Turkle was opening the front door, and Bluma hurried over to say goodbye. She touched Emily on the arm and noticed again how thin and pinched looking this woman was, as if she knew how to live many days on one small bit of food. You'll be sitting Shiva this week, Bluma said. Yes, you have my condolences. As Emily Turkle left with her son, the boy turned to get the last glimpse of Bluma, and Bluma noticed with a shock that she could see Sam there in the boy's face, returning to her this one last time. Goodbye, she called out, unable to stop herself. Thanks for coming. She closed the door behind them, and despite Elaine's protests, she filled the sink with warm, sudsy water and began to collect the plates and teacups.
3: I'll, stand. I'll, stand. I'll be different. I'll stand. Yeah. You know, it, um, it's odd. I'm at that point in my career where you're no longer asked to participate in a young writer's evening as a young writer. You know, and pushing 40, almost pushing 40, um, <laughs> kind of hurts. But I'm very excited about tonight. You can read from the leaflets Kathy Anderson's credentials that are evidence of the small sensation she's making now in um, academic circles with her fiction. She's been published in Callaloo and Essence and the Southern Review. That's all down there. I wanted to spend a few minutes talking to you a bit about the woman, which you might not know. Just from a curriculum vita. I met Kathy about four years ago in my first job when I was teaching in Washington, D.C. at George Washington University. And I was, ha ha, uh, hired to teach creative writing. And what I knew instinctively by meeting a student like her told me emphatically you cannot teach anyone to write. The story you're going to hear tonight that was published in the Southern Review was written in my workshop in spite of me. Okay. Uh, She is a woman who impressed me from the beginning of just having raw palpitating talent, uh, the kind of talent that humbles you as a teacher of writing. And the reason we've stayed in contact all these years is because she has been the friend that I can call on from time to time when I'm stuck with my own work. And we don't exchange dialogues about editors, or about agents, or about book contracts. We exchange dialogue about the whole process of writing, about its magic and its wonder. Um, That is so rare today. And it'll be evidenced in what you will hear now. Here's a woman who believes in the magic of what we do as artists. I give you Kathy Anderson.
4: I think I'll stand. Um, thank you.
5: Um,
4: and thank you. It's falling. Well, I'll follow it, perhaps. <laughs> um, OK. Um, it, it will not be possible to read this whole story. Um, I write poetry, and I've begun to write fiction. And I had to choose. and. What decided it was, there are three characters I really want to share with you. and So we'll see what 15 minutes does. <clears throat> Louisiana shade, Sterling. Rains have come. The air told me it was time. The down turning of leaves, the hissing rain makes. I place my fingers, palms up. Lee I think I'll sit down. <laughs> Does that, can I keep that 30 seconds? (laughs) Should I just start over? Rains have come. The air told me it was time. The downturning of leaves, the hissing rain makes. I place my fingers palms up on leaves receiving the wetness. The rain air whips my pants, then pulls them like breath in a balloon. My feet seek roots that stream across the path, a trickle of a path. I touch the tree trunks that line the way. I've discovered faces in these trunks, one narrow and lean, the bark rough and patchy, another with knots I can hold on to, hollows I explore with cautious fingers. Wet and pungent, the few remaining pine trees are sticky to the touch. The oak holds the lace of a spiderweb, wet with dew and the soft warmth of decomposing wood. There are trees that have elbows. Indians tied them down when the trees were saplings. They learned to grow horizontal. When released, the center stayed parallel to the ground. The rest of the trunk continued seeking sun. They make a trail. I follow my hand as it finds them. They lead me to a spring. The ground, instead of yielding to my feet ever so slightly, has become rocky. And here I sit and have sat, dangling the dark legs I pretend shadow the underworld. Leroy. It's hot. That little bit of rain didn't do nothing. I'm in the middle of bed, and even with the covers off, it's hot. I wish I could draw on the ceiling, give me something to look at it some nights. I can't stand it no more. It's about time I go to the window. I love wiggling down to the bed bottom. I guess I better wash the windowsill tomorrow before Mama sees this dark place where I've been putting my chin. Woods and stars. Everybody's asleep or pretending to be. The woods be dark, but there's this clear space right at the edge of town. It's almost time. There. There he go. Standing like Moses in that picture in the Bible. And he just stand there. He lives in the woods. Grandma say it was 30 years the house he lived in was empty. His daddy would come back every year when his granddaddy died to make sure everything was all right, nothing broken into. He paid Mr. Culver to watch it and keep it up when he was gone. Matt Sterling's mama never came back. I wish I could have seen them. We wait every Saturday for him, the son who came back 30 years later. We wait for him to go to the general store. He reeled tall. Only Mr. Culver come close, and he got this big stick car with all this stuff we never got close enough to see what of. And black, Billy Lee say if he walked around at night, you wouldn't know the difference unless he spoke to you. I know better. Mm -hmm. He don't stay long, just look like he be looking right at me. Then he turn around and go back. He must be wanting to talk sometime. Me too. I want to go away, like in one of those dreams I have sometime. He be in my dreams and we sit and talk. Remind me of daddy, but I can never remember what we talk about. Shoot, it's my secret, watching him standing there three or four of the seven nights in the week. Just watching his face let me know he ain't going to hurt me. His comments say to me he want to talk. I look at my bandana in the moonlight, squint real good. Yeah, I wish it didn't happen. I wish I wasn't going, I wasn't there last Saturday. I wish I didn't have to do what I got to do before this Saturday. Grandma. Child, why are you fidgeting so? Leroy, if those ain't ants in your pants, they surely must be fleas. Have you been out in the woods with that dog? Stop swinging on that porch rail before you end up fixing it. Come down here and keep Grandma some company in the garden. Here, start turning that soil up. That's right, here, right there. Grandma, are you really the oldest deaconess in the church? That's right. My mama and your daddy's granddaddy started working this land when it was just trees rising back till you can't see no more. Do you remember when they came? They who? You know, the Sterlings. You've been asking about that man all summer, ever since you children knew you did wrong. I don't care if you didn't say anything. You all should be shamed calling that man Mr. Sterling names. All of you should have been whipped in the middle of town. As it is, there are many a daddy with a sore arm from switching brown behinds. That sterling family, hmm. My mama always said they brought more than 40 acres and a mule. They had seven wagons piled high. He built the house totally by himself almost. The rest of them helped a little. She said they were real friendly. They all were, because we were all trying to make a space for ourselves after the war. We just didn't want to bother white folks moved as far back as possible as not to disturb them. Actually, to say the truth, so they wouldn't disturb us. We heard about some white folk trying to keep their slaves, telling them the war wasn't over and they weren't emancipated. (laughs) It worked moving back here, because we each had our little gifts for doing things, so we didn't have to go to them for nothing. The first Matt Sterling must have got his name because his work was so good. At sunset, there would be a battle between his furnace and the sun right through the trees. Nearly anything iron around here still standing, he forged into something beautiful. I knew the second Matt Sterling, and you know the third. The third Matt Sterling's daddy went up north to go to college. People didn't see why. We got good Negro colleges right here, and then came back and didn't keep the furnace burning. Maybe it was because he wasn't named Matt Sterling. It was little Matt who got that love of fire and iron from his granddaddy. I sat down with his granddaddy, the second Matt Sterling, and he said his father and his father's father was a blacksmith. It's such a shame that house stayed empty 30 years after the accident. Child, that road could use some straightening. Those are very good. Now, why do you keep asking me about the Sterlings? Grandma, i got to go. I'm supposed to meet everybody. I'll be back. I did my chores already. Well, I guess it's all right. Come give me some sugar and go ahead and play while you still got some play left, and I'll tell your mama. (sighs) Sterling. The night is escaping slow. Wisps cling to the edge of trees. The wooden floor is still slightly warm from the first heat since the rains. I stand in the sun mornings before my work inside is begun do you know i've returned to your forge stand silent touching each tool the instruments you played six days of every week the woods would sing with the sound for 10 years the 10 years remaining to you i did not see you i was only able to speak to you over a telephone wire over and over you said it wasn't right that you couldn't see the third matt sterling that my mother was wrong stealing me away It was an accident. I was going to learn your trade, what my father wouldn't. I return, Matt Sterling. You are here still in the quiet of the mornings. I think of when I would slip out of bed and you would be waiting for our walk. I return with my own instruments. I can't use yours, but mine continue to play the songs you began long ago. Leroy. It was Mr. Colvert who knew he was coming. We were waiting for him, but our folks said we weren't supposed to stare. Trying to be respectful, we just made sure we had work to do outside that day. When he came walking down the street, I peeped at Grandma, Mama, and Daddy. They were wondering, too. They were just better at hiding it. Grandma started patting her foot and humming a little, and that always means something special was about to happen. She was thinking something, but that day she wasn't saying. He walked into town with his carved stick taller than him. The elders said it was something from their mama's and daddy's time. It was all carved up and pretty. He walked like he knew he was going. That was when grandma said he was blinded at his granddaddy's forge when he was five years old. Grandma, boy, you awful quiet. What's on your mind? Oh, I was just thinking about the day when Matt Sterling came to town. Hey, grandma, has anyone ever visited Mr. Sterling? Young man, hay is for horses, and by now you should know the good Lord didn't put me here in the shape of a horse. I don't know of anyone visiting him. I guess nobody's been invited. His daddy wasn't like that, or his mama. His daddy would come asking all kinds of questions and then disappear into that house for days. The tap, tap, tap of that machine would come out of the woods at night. They say he got his degree in something called Folklore, he was studying us, real friendly, but studying all the while. He said our great-great-grandchildren are going to want to know about us, that we got to record our ways, because the white folk who were, who were weren't doing us no justice. Well, we tried to help him the best we could, him being from here and all, and his family helping to start this town. And boy, why did you want to know? Oh, I was just wondering. Nobody really talks to him except how do you do, and I keep thinking that's what it's like to have nobody to talk to and no one to see either. I wonder if he gets lonely. Nobody knows if he can speak, huh? He's been away two times more than I've been alive. Did his mama make them go back north? I see you've been paying attention to your math. No, child, nobody's heard him speak, and his mama sure did snatch him up quick and take him up north. She was a schoolteacher and never seemed to get used to our ways, and when little Matt was blinded, well, she just went crazy. Leroy, I don't know how to answer your other questions, but it hurts me to my heart to see him so. You know, we make our own choices in this life, and the least, and the least we can choose is what we do with what we got. Now, your daddy's coming home, and you better get ready for supper. Sterling. I thought I could return and work in peace. I thought within this wood, the fold of my family home, I could just disappear, become stone. The children, first with taunts, and then with a fragment of the stone, I've become, demand recognition. Hmm. I am so nervous. They did not accept my offerings, what I have been able to give of myself, left on the trees where they have found them, each of their own nature a gift. The children know they won't accept my silence. They mock me. I do not hear their voices. I hear the chorus of ancestors through them, a chorus that becomes louder each time we meet, the chorus dark without a face, just voice. My work must be shared. They're coming for me. I must face them this Saturday. We shouldn't have called him names, our butts wouldn't have been tore up, and I wouldn't be standing on this road with all the boys mad, all quiet and making the air thick and mean. I tried to open my mouth, but everybody stared me down. I feel sick every Saturday morning. I try to get out of coming, but they call me Chicken and Blind Man Junior. Why doesn't he say something? Why don't he do something?
6: Thank you. I'm sorry for the nervousness. Come down. I'm Lori Siegel, and I have brought you Phyllis Moore from Tallahassee via Chicago. Can you hear me? Over the last several years, I've observed her metamorphose from a student into a colleague, and have watched her live some terrific 24-hour days. She has been taking courses and teaching courses and writing papers and grading papers. She's assistant and major domo of our writing program, and I forget under what title she holds together and nurses along the Midwestern chapter of Penn. I happen to know that she even has a life of her own, And in the hallways, when I meet her, she tells me funny stories. Somewhere in there, she has found the wherewithals with which to do her own writing. I admire it very much. Some of her stories make some complex Nabokovian connections. They are seriously funny. They have shapes. When we let her off from all the stuff we have made her do, she is going to be a splendid writer. I give you Phyllis Moore.
7: This is a story about a girl. It's called Once in Hamburg. Once in Hamburg, and prevented us from getting kidnapped and worse by three giant Turks. Lucky we had the peanut butter. It was the one thing and insisted on carrying when we went on trips, that, the passports, and the cash. I was in charge of the hand lotion, the Kleenex, the matchbook sewing kit. This is the sort of arrangement that is worked out by girlfriends all over the world. And Darylin and I had been best friends since the ninth grade, since the day she'd walked into homeroom eating a Vidalia onion as if it were an apple. From that moment on, I was hers. And it is the onion that explains what happened that day in Hamburg in the back of that Chevrolet. It is the onion that divides humanity, that divides the Darylins of the world from my kind. My kind stands paralyzed in the face of adversity, like a toad in front of a coiled viper. In dreams, we are blonde stalks of wheat, standing tall before the combine, waiting our turn in perfectly parallel rows, knowing, as a stalk of wheat would know, that the jig is up. <laughs> Daryland had this purse. It was like a box. It could stand up on its own. It had round red splotches all over it that I said looked just like Tootsie Roll Pops come used to steal from McCroy's. and said they were ancient Tibetan mandalas. It closed at the top with a, dreth- a leather drawstring. She said she got it out of this catalog from New York City at her center, that her cousin sent her, and it was made by real monks in Kathmandu, that the leather had been cured in their very own urine, which was one reason why it took six months to get to Brunswick. That's Georgia, which is where we're from. To me, it looked more like something her Uncle Buck fashioned out of an old hide on her graduation day, thinking to himself that this was just the ticket. Besides the peanut butter, Darylin carried a bottle of Windex in her purse. What's the point of Europe, she said, if you can't see it? (laughs) The idea of our only food source? And a household cleanser made from ammonia D commingling at the bottom of a leather bag soaked in monk pee made me uneasy. (laughs) Daryland said I was anal, that it only went to show my Virgo rising, and that I should read Susan Sontag on the self-contained before I turned 21, which was the age, she said, at which the brain supply of sodium and potassium begins to diminish. (laughs) She wore it like a street fighter slung over one shoulder. We were 19, and it was London. Everything in London confirmed our suspicion that America was somewhere to be ashamed of. Our allegiance, by some twist of faith, turned. The old names, Betty Crocker, Borden's Craft, now bruised our ears. We saluted the new names, Chambercy, McVitie's Typhoo. We began to use the word remarkable. <laughs> Look at that, Daryl said, pointing to the cover of Time Out. Jim Morrison ejaculated on stage in Miami. That's, remar- that's remarkable, I said. What's ejaculate? <laughs> the way she explained it, I, I pictured this giant salt shaker being held upside down, pouring forth, floored why anybody would want to pee on stage in front of people. Had Daryl been there, she would have collected the stuff, sent it off to Kathmandu to be used for the making of ladies' handbags. But Daryland got mad at London. The British have the worst teeth, she said. Let's go to Istanbul. <laughs> Istanbul, I said, why can't we just go to see the Eiffel Tower like everyone else? Because, Daryland said, plus we can stay free with Renan's parents. Renan, wait, that guy in the plane, the guy with the jaw, we don't even know him. We went. You know the Twilight Zone episode, the one where the string mop head teenager kid lives as an outcast on a planet full of regular humans, and the regular human kid lives as an outcast on a planet full of string mops? In Istanbul, I was blonde where everybody is not blonde, tall where everybody is not tall. I was a girl in Istanbul where everybody is a man. (laughs) We took a Dolmish to the scribbled address. The mother and father greeted us at the door, two dark little twins. Hello, we said. Hello, they said. Darlin' and I understood immediately we were sluts. <laughs> Truth was, Darlin' qualified. I didn't quite measure up. Back home, the best of my conquests had been a ride home from French class with a violinist first chair. While Daryl ended this by her second quarter, freshman year, had smoked dope with a son of a Republican senator, down shots backstage in Atlanta with B.B. King, slept on a boxcar with a criminal, and seduced at the Holiday Inn downtown, right next to where her father takes his Pontiac in for repairs. Our Religion 101 teacher, a full professor, one of the few people you meet in a lifetime who can use in as much as in almost every sentence and get away with it he knew Schweitzer the father took our things the mother asked would we like coffee yes we said that would be great thinking this might not be enough I added we love coffee (laughs) we drink it all the time at home the father motioned for us to take a seat but as soon as I saw the couch I knew that if I did my skirt would ride up way up beyond the slut line so I asked to Go help with the coffee. Daryl sat down, leaned over to the father, and said, I am extremely concerned with Renan's teeth. Daryl had this thing about teeth. Personally, I could live to die for that guy in Belle de Jour, the one who plays Catherine Deneuve's lover. He's got two silver front teeth. The rest are all sawed off, really erotic. Daryl was horrified when I told her, Daryl of course, has perfect teeth. All her cousins are dentists. I found the kitchen. Hello, I said. The mother was standing with her back to me, and she did not turn around. Can I help? She did not turn around even harder. <laughs> the sight of the Nescafe comforted me, so I said, what a nice kitchen you have, but she didn't say the better to feed you with. She asked, did I speak French at all? Her English was not so very good. Un petit, I said, looking at the fourth floor, full of pride. Bon, she said. There was a blue pan on the stove. It was milk warming. I watched as the mother took the pan and poured milk into the little cups full of powdered Nescafe. Lumps of skin landed like dumplings. In Istanbul, it seems, homogenization is just another word. Mm, I said. Bon, no, she said. <laughs> I followed her back out of the living room where Darylin was holding forth. Darlin had four conversations. There was the everything's worse than it used to be conversation. The man has not changed an inch since the last go conversation. To be here now, and the artistic vision is not all that mysterious and is usually attributable to some technical technical innovation. Her personal best. Artistic vision, Daryl was saying, is not all that mysterious. In fact, it is usually attributable to some techni- technical innovation. The uncle was holding on to every word. Take the invention of tubes of paint. Look at Van Gogh. I sat down in the rocking chair, realizing too late that this was the mother's chair. What a nice day, I said. In Georgia, where we're from, it's usually so sticky this time of year. Il fait beau, n'est-ce pas, I said. She rested her gaze just above my forehead. She seemed to notice something far away, something in the distance, something familiar, a crucifixion, perhaps. (laughs) I asked if she thought it would be as as nice tomorrow as it had been today. Bon, she said. At dinner time, we were called to the table. The mother asked what we'd like to drink, and Daryl said a Coke. Don't you want to ask for a skirt to go with that, I said, but Daryl said hush, warning me not to explain. In the center of the table was a plastic placemat with a picture of the Eiffel Tower on it. Out came the mother from the kitchen with a big covered dish, lamb's eyes, I thought, fish juice, horseflies, and vinegar. She sat the dish on the Eiffel Tower. She smiled, the father smiled, Daryl and then me. I forgave Daryl and everything. When the father uncovered the dish, it was fried chicken. At night, we watched The Fugitive on TV. After three days, Daryland decided we should be going. She kissed the father goodbye on the mouth and told him to be sure to get Renan to the dentist. First thing, the father said he would, that he surely would, pressing his hands together after the manner of wise men from the East. Goodbye, they said. Goodbye, we said. We flew to Hamburg. On the plane, Daryland announced we were going to Bergen. Norway, I said. Why Norway? Because, Daryland said, but Daryland's wallet was missing. We hadn't gotten traveler's checks because and said traveler's checks were bourgeois. I've still got my pennies, I said, in my best Doris day. I'd emptied out my clown penny bank just before leaving home just in case. They were in a little velvet pouch sandwiched now in between the hand lotion and the matchbook sewing kit. and said we'd have to hitchhike to Amsterdam and then wire home for the money. I said, why not wire home for the money here, here in Hamburg? But and said it would be an experience. Hitchhiking is perfectly safe if you know how to do it, she said. She'd read the State Department's brochure. (laughs) We found our way to the highway. Two cars pulled over. One was a gray Jaguar. A lady in a fur coat was driving it. The other was a dirt green Chevrolet lowrider rusted out of its mind. There were three guys in it. I headed for the Jag but Daryl took my arm, steered me towards the Chevrolet saying, get smart, life's a paradox, and that I should know that by now and prided herself on being a terrific judge of character. Appearances can be deceiving, she told me. That's the lesson of Othello. But there had been times she'd been wrong. Mr. Gilsinger, for instance, our high school English teacher, she thought he'd ask her to come by her, his office after dinner because he wanted to talk about how interesting her poetry was. As Daryl explained it to me later, he seemed instead to be going through a particular stage in his development that encouraged him to be demonstrative about his maleness. The guy on the passenger side got out and opened the back door for us. I slid in. There was a guy already waiting for me at the end of the seat, then and then the other guy. We were the cheese. As the click of the locks sounded, first on my side, then on Daryl's, my brain clicked into, this is not happening to me mode. I watched as the Jaguar sped off down the highway. I said to myself, this is the part of the story where two hippie chicks from Brunswick, Georgia, get raped and quartered just outside of Hamburg in the backseat of a Chevrolet by three gigantic Turks. It would be our story on the cover of the next edition of the State Department's brochure, and the headline would read, once in Hamburg, and there'd be an interview with a lady in the gray Jaguar, and she'd be shaking her head telling the officer, they look like such nice girls. (laughs) I turned to the guy next to me. He smiled. He was poking the index finger of his right hand in and out of a fist he'd made with his left hand. (laughs) This I took to be an international sign. I turned to Darylin, but she wasn't paying attention. She was talking a mile a minute to the guy on her side. What karma, she said. She just found out they were from Istanbul. She told the driver how we were on our way to Bremen. It was sunny, not a cloud in the sky. Darylin had on my favorite skirt. It was white. It fell down evenly in three equidistant tiers that I said looked just like a wedding cake. Darylin said was a perfect rep- replica of a Babylonian cigarette. There was a sign that said, Bremen, this way. And when we went that way, even Darylin got quiet. We turned onto an unpaved road. We were out of the city now. There were farmhouses, but it was mostly fields. My guy said something to her guy that tickled the driver pink he looked into the rear view his eyebrows thick like mean black anthills and said something that sounded like giggle bears looking at me I started to tear up but Daryl and pinched me hard she reached down into her purse and took out the jar of peanut butter her guy looked interested cows now appeared on either side of the road they too looked interested (laughs) it was a brand new jar so it took her some effort to get it open my guy offered to help Daryl said no thanks she had it she took the lid off and placed it delicately on her guy's knee. Using her hand as a spade, she scooped out a handful of the peanut butter and began to apply it to her face like cold cream, <laughs> then down her blouse. She turned to her guy, didn't see this part she told me later, and smiling like a geisha, drooled. Her guy hissed, yelled to the driver. The car swung over to the side of the road. The door was unlocked. Her guy jumped out. We were shoved and kicked and thrown to the ground. Door slammed. There was dirt in the air. We looked up. The car spun around, in the dirt cot, hesitated. My guy rolled down his window and spit. The car took off. It took the rest of the afternoon to walk back to town. Daryl made no attempt to wipe herself off, but I insisted. I insisted with my suddenly important hand lotion and Kleenex. She didn't say a word. She seemed tired, way out of proportion. I noticed her skirt. It kept riding up. It was really windy that day and making it hard for her to walk. But instead of getting irritated, she seemed embarrassed. Her slip was showing. We came to a park. Daryl and asked, could we sit down? And I said, if she wished, pleased with my new leading role as travel consultant. <laughs> it was then that we noticed. Bells were ringing and had been ringing the whole time we'd been in Hamburg. We just hadn't heard them until we sat down. The bells wouldn't stop. They wouldn't stop so much that we decided the king must be dead. It must be something that big. Give me your hem, I said. What? Your hem. I took up my matchbook sewing kit. I'm going to sew pennies in your hem. What for? To keep your skirt from riding up. I remember her hair. It was usually so well organized, but that day it was lost. It kept getting tangled up in my needle. It kept getting tangled up in my needle. Then she'd get this look, this look like a schoolgirl, this look like an apology. This happened three times. The wind would blow. Her hair, it was tinsel today, would tangle. She'd give me the schoolgirl look. I would retrieve the maverick strands and go on with my stitching. And it occurred to me that Darylin was a real beauty. I'd never thought of it before, but I looked at her and saw And I was filled with pride that my best friend was so beautiful. And I thought to myself, if I didn't have Daryl and I might have gone through life as a string mop kid, I might have spent my whole life not knowing what ejaculate was, what a superior process homogenization is. I might never have gone to Istanbul. I might never have done anything remarkable at all, like sew pennies into the skirt of a great beauty in Hamburg, in the wind, with the bells ringing, the day the king died. Wake up, said Daryl, are they're going to come put pennies over your eyes. That's from your Uncle Buck, I said. That's from my Uncle Buck. The reason that I kidded Daryl about wanting a skirt to go with her Coke was because of her Uncle Buck. Daryl's Uncle Buck drank a Coke at 10.30 every morning, no matter what one of those perfect six-ounce cokes with a city where it came from on the bottom. He had sewn elastic around one side of a pink pot holder. He didn't like his hand to get wet. And on summer mornings, no matter where you stood on his squat shoestring farm, you'd know on any given day when it was 10.30, because you could hear him call, Daryl Lynn, run, go get me my Coca-Cola with a skirt. He'd always make us guess which city, and Darylin would say things like Kathmandu or Istanbul. But I wasn't ashamed of her Uncle Buck, so I guessed Mobile, Tuscaloosa, Yellow River City.
8: I'm Louis Simpson. It gives me great pleasure to introduce Matthew Cariello and Wendy Hesford. Matthew is working for the PhD at New York University. He also teaches there expository writing. While he was an undergraduate at Rutgers, he won an Academy of American Poets Prize and won another Academy of American Poets Prize four years later. Together with Wendy Hesford, he edits the poetry magazine, Alanthus. I don't want to take time away from the poems, so I'll just say briefly that what I like about Matthew's poems are the sharp images and the fine sense of rhythm and form. Wendy Hesford is in the PhD program at NYU and, like Matthew Cariello, teaches expository writing. As an undergraduate at Montclair State College, She won the Passaic College Poetry Prize, and in 1986, she was awarded an an Academy of American Poets Prize. Wendy was a student in a class I taught at NYU, and her poems struck me as true and moving. Matthew Cariello and Wendy Hesford were recently married. Matthew will read first, followed by Wendy.
5: That's the first. How's that? Is that all right? Okay. Since we're splitting the time here, we each have about seven minutes to read. So I have all my poems timed. This is from a series of poems, a continuing series I've been working on for the past two years called Odes on Earth. (sighs) A bulb of garlic. A citadel, a catacomb, sculpted stone of shadow. In its crevices are miles of open air. I admire its fleshy curves and hints of red its patience and self-satisfied look. In my mouth, it begins to speak. I am part of your life. Clove by clove, you take me to my green pith. I settle in the blood of your heart. When you die, I am content, having spent my life in soil No stone ever knew. Glass of beer. Its foamy borders circle perfectly. A glistening, a liquid reckoning of greatness, bubbles up from some well. A breath of the heart. A yellow sea. On the surface floats an island. In the middle is a volcano. The island is uncharted and wanders among the continents. See the tiny people who live there. They are your cousins, favorite uncle, unmarried sister, and your mother and father as children. They live on the grain as gods live, timeless in the revolving sea. Their whole world is a yellow ocean held in a clear glass, the glass you enter to live their lives. Jellyfish. You are the cup of the sea, water woven into filaments of light, a star etched on the broken water's edge. I lay beside you, listening to the ocean arrive. A crescent moon leaves the water like a sail and lifts itself into the sky. The wave that carried you to the sand has crawled back to its foamy bed and deadly tendrils extended you die. I can't throw you back. You die without thought, with some small spark of life, and will dry to dust in a day. I won't miss you, and soon you'll be gone, gone, my venomous balloon, my holy water, my radiant stone, my lidless eye, my moon, my blood. Varying a little, this is another poem that I accompany myself on. called The Ride with heavy coat to check the cold and my sled behind a skimming weight I stood at the top of the hill I knew my eyes would tear and the trip back up took hours but I flattened my body to the run, threw my weight into it, and fell past the lights and faces, felt the dull thud on bumps as snow rose in plumes from the runners. The new snow smelled like old wood and rust, it looked like the moon, all fallen. I fell through night, and it seemed I'd never stop, but slide on and on. No street beneath, no rope to pull, no skidding stop in the bank. When the speed had cut its wind, I pushed with my hands. I had wings in the snow, and my eyes saw stars, stars, stars. Over I rolled and broke my fall softly in a drift. Easy in the snow, I wanted to sleep, warm and puzzled. I saw my hands flutter in the air above. My frozen breath rose like music, stiffened and slacked and swayed above my body. I knew it, it was easy, it was this easy to die. Thank you.
9: same
3: height
9: <laughs> <laughs> We're in the same everything. Um, good evening. The poems that I have decided to read tonight are four elegies. Uh, two are written to my great grandmother, Amelia, who I've never met before and has lived in Cornwall, England. One is written to my uh, grandmother, who died two winters ago of Alzheimer's disease. And the other one is a recreation of a story that my grandfather passed down to me, which is a story of his little cousin who witnessed his brother drown and die. Before I begin, I'd like to sort of set the tone, even though maybe it's a little low to end the night on an elegy, but by a quote from Eudora Welty, the memory is a living thing. It too is in transit. But during its moment, all that is remembered joins and lives, the old and the young, the past and the present, the living and the dead. This first poem is called The Concurrian River, and I'm writing it in the persona of the little boy who saw his cousin drown. <clears throat> Nothing could have swelled more than summer rain on the downs, more than heather along the river. When we were young and knowing we shouldn't have walked away from home, we roamed down to the river. brother. There are rivers we know nothing of. Tell me, when you cupped your hands to drink, were you made to think fine of the indifferent river? Way down in high brush, our father labored to find you, wet and limp, water leafing from your mouth. He carried you over the layered downs, set in sparing light and overgrown weeds. Nothing swells more than the river when it rains. There are clouds of light, like words to God we may never touch. Rise, brother, rise. Raise your hands and tell me why you reached and fell and died. Brown and somehow proud, the river climbs the downs. Uh, The second one is called Elegy in March, and it's written to my grandmother. I cannot stop myself from wandering into her room. All it takes is time, everyone said. Still, I look for what remains of her. Beyond her window, the mimosa does not move or cry out loud for fear that winter may crack its bones. As when I was a child, I look down to the pigeons pecking at the thawing ground. Once a flaring red wing or a cardinal in the green thicket sings, the tulip she planted last spring will push the dirt aside. Even though winter is not over, they slightly rise. It is my grandmother wandering into her garden, Annoyed at the neighbor's barking dogs, she heads for the flower bed. But not knowing what she wanted there and not asking, she follows her body back into the ground. Uh, This one is written for my great-grandmother, Amelia. August blows me into the garden where you are buried. I look at your white stone as leaves spotted with sunlight. Sunlight, a fragile lamp, descends on a girl. Saffron, you ate as a girl, with syrup so sweet. I taste the sweetness you tasted. Sweet, the sweetness of a dead woman. And this last one is also written to my great grandmother, and it's called The Sea at Marizon, which is a body of water in Cornwall, England. It is the daughter's instinct which makes me come back To the landscapes of your birth To the sea which breathes your breath The aroma of saffron rising These images along the shore The forms, the beauty, the pantomime sunset The gray boats veined with barnacles arranged in sloppy rows That haunted ocean, the salt blue-gray I want the power of tides, the language to speak to you again. I want to give this silence a voice, to give this voice a body. I want to touch your fingertips, your hovering breasts, your strong arms pulling the sheets out of the ringers, your white linens drying on the line. I feel the wind creep up my long dress, wind that is saturated with your earthly presence, steeped wind which carries you back into my body. Thank you. We hope you'll join us for some wine and conversation et cetera, in the front of the store to the right. And that's it. And thank you all for coming this evening. It was really a wonderful evening.